May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's a warm uh, welcome to you all here again, and it's been quite a pleasure and an opportunity that, uh, uh, for us to be here with you that uh, we will be reflecting on and ruminating about for many years to come. And I thank you for your hospitality and for your warm-heartedness, and most importantly, for your shared witness and conviction in the great gospel hope that has been set before us. And Laz and I... Um, uh, uh, have, have been talking a lot this Lent, Liza, my wife, uh, because I, for one, grew up with a, uh, I would say, an interesting relationship to Lent, meaning that I didn't understand it, and so I, I mocked it, uh, and so I had this great, this great uh, joke that I thought was so clever that I gave up Lent for Lent, and people would uh, um, laugh just about as heartily as you just did, uh, because it's, uh, well, it just showed a little bit more of the uh, sort of naivete and ignorance of the speaker, I think, than, than anything else. And, and I've developed a much deeper appreciation for it, and a much more, I would like to think, um, profound awareness of just how uh, meaningful a season it can actually be. And I bring that up because not only are we in Lent now, but I had a similar relationship to the verse that I mentioned yesterday, which is Romans 12.1, that is, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And I used to have a relationship to this verse in somewhat the same way that I did to Lent, in that I, I, I thought that it was too simplistic. I thought that it was too clearly, um, now that you've gotten to this point with your relationship with God, now go and do all the things that you need to do. And so if that's really what the Apostle Paul is talking about there, well then, uh, it's not only not very profound, it doesn't seem like you would have to come to church to hear someone tell you that. Now despite what many preachers seem to actually think, you do not have to come to church for someone to tell you what you should do. You could go uh, to a Lifetime Entertainment channel and find any manner of things that, uh, that you know that you should not be doing or should be doing more of or perhaps have been doing too much of and so you need to stop. And that's not why we come here. And so I've had to rethink my relationship to this both Lent and this verse, and interestingly enough, it's come about in the same way. Because as the Apostle Paul says in this verse, he gives us this juxtaposition that at one point is so counterintuitive, but actually begins to speak very profoundly about what the Christian life actually entails, in that he equates the way that we use our bodies as our spiritual worship. Now, this is something that would have flown in the face of sort of many uh, kind of ancient Greek uh, religious ways of thinking, uh, first and foremost, but not the least of which where we find people today where they would say, well, whatever is spiritual is ephemeral and perhaps, um, you know, I, I experience it on a mountaintop or at a sunrise or in a sweat lodge or, or in Sedona. You know, everyone, something in Sedona is very spiritual. But it doesn't necessarily have anything concretely to do with connection to my body other than I sort of feel it. And the Apostle Paul is saying very unequivocally that how we present our bodies as a living sacrifice is, in fact, our spiritual act of worship. Now, this begins to make sense when we realize that what is taking place by our spiritual understanding of things is actually the experience of our bodies in the passage of time. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, 
Ecclesiastes 3.1 says that God has put eternity in their hearts. And I'm certainly not the first philosopher to recognize this, but it has been an often cited uh, uh, statement that it is the existence of time and the passage thereof that actually brings into question, well, everything else. I mean, I'm often preaching at funeral sermons and I say, well, you've heard the cliche, uh, time heals all wounds. Well, this is nothing more than a cliche because, in fact, time the passage of it, the finitude of it, the amount that we are allotted, time creates all wounds. Because it is in light of the finitude of our own existence, in the um, sands of the hourglass, as it were, running through, that we begin to question. We begin to wonder. We begin to ask, what is this all about? What is this, uh, what, what is history? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is, in fact, this life uh, that, that I have been thrown into, as Heidegger would say? What is going on here? And so in this world, our spiritual life, our understanding of who God is, what he has done, um, does he exist, what is his requirements, any number of things that are spiritual questions, well, they become very, very embodied Because we are those people who have to walk. We are those people who carry in our bodies the answer to that question by the way that we interact with ourselves, with our neighbors, and ultimately in the face of the finitude of time. So the Apostle Paul says that spiritual worship is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, Lent is a perfect example of how this works out, because none of you, but some people uh, give up um, caffeine for Lent, you know, and uh, or some people give up Facebook for Lent, or some people do some sort of self-abnegation, some sort of uh, self-denial during Lent, as they would never probably say this, but there's a certain amount of quid pro quo to this self-denial. They say, well, I'm going to do something good for God this Lent. And I know he probably isn't going to uh, grade on the curve, and it's probably not earning anything, but, you know, if, if I'm on the edge, you know, if I'm in the admissions process at heaven and I need a little pushover, well, uh, that 40 days without coffee has got to count for something. You know, it's got to count for something. And what does this reveal? Well, it reveals a very interesting picture of God. In the bodily denial of whatever it may be, the spiritual reality comes through. Because clearly, the God that is worshipped by denying coffee cares about self-denial and self-limiting and apparently caffeine above all else. And that is a distinct spiritual way of worshipping God. That's why Protestants, for the, for the most part, have had a hard time with Lent. Because fundamentally, the gospel says that sacrifice has ended. There are no more. There is no amount of coffee you could give up for God. There is no more uh, on, the, on the fence of getting into heaven. Because once you could believe in your heart that Jesus has risen from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, well then, you're saved. The work is done. The fight is over. So what does Lent then become? Well, it's actually somewhat very uh, apt to say 
that Lent, as the idea of physically manifesting our spiritual worship, becomes the everyday walk of the Christian life. Because we begin to walk as people who are both called by a God whom we know and in light of what he has done. So whatever we do, however we do it, and to, uh, for whatever amount of self-sacrifice it may involve, it can no longer be seen as meritorious in any sense or pushing us over the edge or anything other than simply our way of witnessing to what God has done in Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul ran into this fight, actually, because he, uh, uh, in Romans 14, you'll see that apparently what happened, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, apparently what happened is people heard the gospel, and then somebody went off to a uh, uh, Christian conference somewhere in, in Sedona, possibly, and came back a vegetarian. And they said, um, you know what, like, I know we're all Christians, but it's really, really good to be a vegetarian um, because, you know, my skin's cleared up and I'm sleeping better. And, and you know, kale is really seems to be, it's got to be in the Bible somewhere. I mean, I'm sure Adam and Eve ate kale. Like, you, this is what took place. And, and they apparently were running around saying um, it's more Christian to, to be a vegetarian than to not be. This is in your Bible. Just go to Romans 14. And the Apostle Paul says, which could also be a very interesting Lenten passage, listen, guys, the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So whatever you drink, if you do it for the Lord, whatever you don't drink, do it for the Lord. And, and well, goodness sakes, haven't you understood that in view of God's mercies, you do these things? This is where it comes back to our understanding of the pre-Romans uh, 12 one, the preceding 11 chapters that he takes painstaking uh, steps to lay out in as clear a, a way as possible, sacrifice has ended. Fear has been addressed because death has lost its sting. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. Now this peace that the Apostle Paul says comes with the kingdom of God, this fruit of these mercies that we have been shown, I'm very um, uh, aware that this was something that was dear to the heart of the Reformers, and in particular, our uh, beloved Archbishop Cranmer, who crafted our prayer book, the architect of our prayer book, because he put the peace in the communion service all the way at the end in order to show that peace is the fruit of this wonderful account of God having so loved the world that he gave his son, so that at the end, he says, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love. Keep your spirits and your bodies in worshipful, worshipful spiritual practice. This is where we live as people. Because when we are people in view, who live in view of God's mercies, well, if we present our bodies as living sacrifices, 
Well, that's a question that we have to address. And how we do it and what that looks like, well, that can be a, a moment for, for uh, uh, discussion. But that we present our bodies, that's no longer in question. And why is that? Well, because we walk. You're about to get up out of here and go. And you're going to go in peace in view of God's mercies. You're going to go in disquiet in view of God's um, uh, possible uh, existence. You're going to be confronted once again with sickness, with the news, with yourself, with your, uh, the, the vicissitudes of life. And once again, in the midst of that, be confronted with an act of spiritual turmoil that will either be addressed by God's mercies or not. Which is, of course, why we're here. This is why we come to church. This is why we need a preacher. This is why the Apostle Paul says faith comes by hearing. Because we are people who have to sit once again. And having had all of our lives turned around by the passage of time, nevertheless once again hear that the great anchor into the world that will never be shaken is Christ and his death for you. And it's from that anchor that we live. And it's on that foundation that we stand. And it's from those mercies that we present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Because we know the God that we worship. We know the spiritual life that we live, and we know that it is not anything about what we are doing, but solely because of what he has done. So the life of a Christian in this respect is about walking the way of the cross. Because we are these people who have the audacity to walk out of this world, out of this room, into a world proclaiming that our God so loved this world that he gave his son. In the face of sickness, we have the claim that God is the author and giver of life and has come to redeem the brokenness of the world. Repent and believe in his son. We are the people who listen to the news and nevertheless uphold the cross as the love of God for the world. This is the endurance of life, the spiritual act of worship that turns us into living sacrifices. And living sacrifices are ones who continue to wrestle, to, to uh, fight, to squirm, but nevertheless are rooted in the fact that God has not remained silent, has spoken, and has promised to come again. And in the meantime, we wait, and we walk, and we hold on, and we pray. Now, I'm reminded of this very uh, dramatically at my own church, because we have a, a, a sort of a, a country um, a parish with a sprawling campus, and on both sides we have these great monuments. So on one side, that was erected last Good Friday, we have this enormous, very stark cross that could not be uglier, and it's purposely so. And some people wanted to put some flowers around it or, or you know, something, and I, I said, please just leave it for what it is, because it is a stark reminder of the reality of Good Friday. On the exact opposite side of our 
campus. We have our memorial garden where people are interred, and someone just recently donated a beautiful uh, sculpture, a bronze sculpture of St. Francis and the moon, and I don't fully understand it, but it's beautiful to look at. And where do we sit week in and week out? Right in the middle. Right in the middle of Good Friday and of Easter. Because there could be no better representation of a Christian life than the tension that those two poles represent and the lived life of spiritual worship as living sacrifice in the center, upholding that both the cross has come, resurrection is coming, and in the meantime, we stand professing, proclaiming, and holding up Jesus Christ. And we will continue to do this for 109 years before 109 years to come and until he comes as he promised to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so we are people who go in peace. We do lift high the cross as the love of God in the world. So now, as we leave here, once again, may the peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.